This is Purple Hall. Welcome to Preble Hall, a podcast about naval history from the United States Naval Academy Museum in Annapolis. The Royal Navy is associated as an organization with a code of honor, a high moral standard, and a rule-based conduct. Yet in four key episodes, the Royal Navy either ignored, flouted, or used force majeure to disregard international law, maritime convention, or pre-existing standard, most of which had either been written or heavily influenced by Britain and the Royal Navy in the first place. Our guest today to discuss this issue is Alexander Clark. He holds a PhD in war studies from King's College in London, where he studied as part of the Lawton Naval History Unit under the supervision of Professor Andrew Lambert, as well as a family history of service in the Fleet Air Arm during World War II and a father who was a noted naval architect in his time. When not teaching at Kingston University and other universities, he splits his time between writing a book on tribal, battle, and daring class destroyers, continuing his cruiser series, and editing duties for global maritime history and running a Twitter and running Twitter events through his at AC underscore naval history account. Alex, welcome to Preble Hall. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for having me. What is the key issue in the late 1930s with the Royal Navy and these incidents? Are these uh, something that are out of the ordinary for the Royal Navy or are they pretty standard over the course of its history? They're actually pretty standard for the Royal Navy over its course of history. The Royal Navy has always been prepared to throw out the rule book if it needs to, to make the situation work. And the great example also is the one that happens in January 1939. Um, when I did a talk about Singtao and the events there um, a few months back when I did a special on my Twitter account and did all sorts of papers, the point was World War II could have started for the Royal Navy in the Far East in January, literally because the Royal Navy is dealing with the situation as it goes. The situation is the Japanese have taken a merchant ship prisoner. Now, actually, it was found out later the merchant ship had been in the wrong place, but still, the Royal Navy didn't want them taking it prisoner because once the Japanese had established the precedent of being able to take British ship prisoner, they could use it again and again. So what the Royal Navy had to do was they had to get that ship off the Japanese. They didn't have a choice because if they had set precedent, then they would have been problems because international law, especially maritime law, is mostly not written down. It's mostly precedent. It's mostly history. So if you let a precedent stand, you have a problem. And that's what we're dealing with today when we're looking at events with the Chinese in the South China Sea and all these things is that if a precedent is allowed to stand, it will become maritime law. And this is why the Royal Navy was acting as it was. Um, again, to go back to Singtel, they rush a cruiser, HMS Birmingham, there as quickly as they can to get the SS Vincent de Paul out from Singtel, to get it safe in the Japanese hands. And the whole thing was done as quickly as possible. The Royal Navy didn't even bother looking as to whether before they went in, whether the SS Principal had been doing the wrong thing. That didn't matter. What mattered was you couldn't let the precedent stand. How large was the British, uh, the Royal Navy squadron in that region at the time? The Royal Navy squadron in that region at the time was mostly centered around, it was the China fleet. And they were mostly centered around four cruisers, 
which was HMS Birmingham, a town-class cruiser, very brand new, but still technically a light cruiser, despite being roughly 10,000 tons in displacement, because she was carried six-inch guns, a light cruiser. The other three vessels were all county-class cruisers with their eight-inch guns, but slightly older, still over 10,000 tons. There are then various other cruisers from the colonial navies, Australia, the New Zealand division, and there's also the East Indies force, which is sitting in the Indian Ocean. So they've got other forces they can draw from. They also have an aircraft carrier. And this is one of the things which is most interesting about the Royal Navy in the interwar period. When you think of it, people often talk to me about battleships and say, oh, the Royal Navy is a battleship assessed force. Well, actually, they're a cruiser and a carrier assessed force. And you can see this by the fact that what they've got deployed on the other side of the world and they've gone to the effort and expense of deploying is a carrier and cruisers. You know, if they, they have to deploy something to the Far East to deter the Japanese, to be able to monitor the Japanese, it's going to be cruisers, it's a carrier. It's things that they can use to give themselves a presence and to give themselves a position. Not necessarily the infrastructure heavy and very singular focused battleship. Who was commanding the squadron at the time? Or who was the senior officer present? The senior admiral in the Far East is Percy Noble, who is a career diplomat. He is one of those naval officers who gets around everywhere and in fact he ends up in the Second World War doing a lot of work with the Americans, deal with the, uh, the dealing problems between the American Navy and the Royal Navy and how they work together. He is very, very skilled at diplomacy. The Royal Navy deploys to the Far East either to one of two types of officers as their senior officer. Either a warfighter, who will undoubtedly scare the bejesus out of the Japanese because of how aggressively they'll handle their force, or a diplomat, who will do all the very nice dinner parties with the Japanese and the Americans and say how lovely we are, whilst also showing how neat and tidy and well-kept and well-organized the Royal Navy warships are on. Oh, and do you remember they're the other side of the world from their infrastructure, yet we're still working this hard, sort of thing. And then you have various officers down below that. Now, all the captains, again, Captain Brind is a good example. He's the commander of HMS Birmingham, are all very successful officers. They go on to quite senior ranks. And what's always interesting about the sea power then, again, if we go down even lower, you have a sub-lieutenant who's put aboard the SS Vincent de Paul with a small arm party to stop the Japanese getting back aboard her. And this sub-lieutenant is called Sub-Lieutenant Ashworth, who goes on to become an admiral of the fleet. So he's, he's also the son of, the grandson of admiral and son of another captain. So they have, at almost every single level, deployed out here very, very high caliber officers in the Far East. So the Royal Navy can afford to sort of give them the reins to do what they need to do in these situations because they have the faith in them. Now, this is 1939. This is a bit of a precarious situation for the Royal Navy because the Japanese uh, have already been at war uh, in the Far East. How much did that play into the decision-making to board St. Vincent de Paul? That was incredibly critical to it because the Japanese charges were that the Ethnic Vincent de Paul had been supplying arms to the Chinese. Oh, well, I, should, I should ask, who, who, uh, whose ship was the St. Vincent de Paul? <laughs> um, it seems to be that she's technically I've looked into this a bit and there's a dispute over who exactly was owning her at the time and who exactly was running her but 
was using a British flag. And that was the important thing. Uh, it's Theoretically, it's a consortium of small owners out of Liverpool. But it is interesting how her supplies, whenever she does the runs to Hong Kong from the various ports in China, seem to meet up with a Cunard or a White Star Line vessel, which the supplies then get transferred to. Uh, do we know anything about the crew? Was Is it like today where you have really an international crew of a flag from one nation, the ownership of the ship from another nation? Uh, the essence of the pool, yes, to an extent is that. She does have quite a British flavour to a crew, but she does have a very much a mixture of crew, um, has a lot of Indian and local Chinese sailors, which is also another thing the Royal Navy is worrying about. And that's why they put a small party aboard her. They basically... They turn up in Sing Tower, and if you can imagine it, a Royal Navy cruiser resplendent in Imperial policing white, charging in at full trot into a harbour, coming to a stop almost bang on the mooring, in sort of perfect, without a pilot aboard, just charging in and turning up, stopping, a sloop coming in after it, and the cruiser goes one side of the merchant ship, sloop the other side of the merchant ship and they're all between that merchant ship and the three Japanese heavy cruisers sitting in the harbour and that's what the Royal Navy did, they sort of turned up at full speed, now then they start the diplomacy, when the diplomacy isn't going well Captain Brin sends a messenger to the Japanese headquarters saying, right then we are going to be leaving at 9am tomorrow morning we are going to go, and I'm taking them with me, because this isn't going anywhere. At the same time, he sends over this sub-lieutenant with this small party, about five people, to the ship, armed. And their job is literally to stop any Japanese personnel trying to board. And that's what they do. They stay the whole night aboard. They actually find the crew not that welcoming, because the crew are going, well, you could cause trouble you being here. You could make us a target. Mm -hmm. um, the tenants sort of trying to deal with it. And it, it's one of those things when you sit there thinking, when I was reading the paper, I was, this is a 18-year-old boy, really. I teach 18-year-olds. And he's in charge of a chief and four seamen armed with rifles. And he's the next day, he faces off against a Japanese boarding party of about 40 customs personnel who turn up. And he just stands at the top of the ladder and goes, I cannot let you up. You need to go and talk to my captain. And you think about an 18-year-old boy having to deal with that situation. It's you know, quite foreign to how we'd imagine it today, but it's quite common at that time. And he does it very well. He gets mentioned in dispatches. And then he goes, for, goes home to England, actually, not long after that, via the trade in Trans-Siberian Railway. So he actually, there's a whole other story which comes after this event where he's going through Russia pretending not to be a naval officer because he's worried he might get taken in by the commissars because, of course, a Royal Navy officer could be quite interesting to them, especially one of half-Russian parentage. And he's going the whole way through Russia, comes out through Finland just as the fighting starts off there, gets the ship home to the UK and then has a whole war, you know, fighting World War II. But before he'd even got to World War II, he'd done these amazing things. What was the response by the Japanese? Uh, they were pissed off. 
but they didn't want to push it. And it's one of the interesting things with the, the instance you have the next morning when the Royal Navy and the this little flotilla of three ships are leaving, the sloop goes at the front, the merchant ship, the SS Vincent Paul in the middle, and the crews at the back. And the Japanese point their guns at HMS Birmingham. So Captain Brind orders his guns pointed at them. And specifically, he orders each turret to target the bridge of each of the Japanese cruisers and um, the after turret to focus on the headquarters ashore. So he's making a very simple point. He's nice to see. He's doing what's recently happened in Iran. He's making a very straight decapitation threat. You go for me. I will take, you will beat me. Your three heavy cruisers versus one light cruiser. There is no chance of me winning this fight, but I will take you all out because there's no way your bridges survive at this rate. And they go out. The funniest thing, though, I always think about the whole scenario is the sloop at the front, this little ship of little over a thousand tons, armed with a four inch gun, was its four inch gun round to face the crew, a, a Japanese cruisers as well. As if that has any chance of doing anything. But it does it because it's a Royal Navy ship and they are pointing their guns at it, so it will point its guns back. Was Captain Bryn operating on his own authority to carry out this mission, or was he in constant communication either with the squadron or the Admiralty? He had communication to an extent with Percy Noble, but it was a very limited communication. There wasn't this sort of pure comms we would think about today and it was he was talking with the local consulate and trying to work out with them but again he is the local commander he has the authority to retrieve this ship and do whatever what he thinks is necessary and that's the thing Percy Noble trusts him with that and the Admiralty trusts Percy Noble to do this so you've got Percy Noble who's communicating actually more with back home with you know with Downing Street with the foreign office and saying, this is what's going on, we keep it calm. And then one of the good things the Royal Navy does afterwards is they very much keep it, they don't shout about it. They don't make a big thing about it. You find more appears in the Australian, the American press. In the British press, it's very limited information about it. So the British are trying to, they've done it, but they're trying not to embarrass the Japanese too much. And their whole, it's, Features in their whole sort of method of deterrence for Japanese. They are the whole point the town class cruiser HS Birmingham is out there in the first place is because she is a surface raider. That's what the town class are. Well, theoretically, they're anti surface raiders, but the same skills uh, you need to be a good ship at taking out surface raiders, you'd also need to be a good surface raider yourself. And for the Japanese, the town class are a big threat because of that. Are seen as the economic warfare of the Royal Navy. Is there any indication what happened to the Japanese commanders after this incident? Were they relieved of command for failing to uh, secure the SS St. Vincent de Paul? No, actually. Um, what was interesting was the customs officers had seized the ship, but the Imperial Japanese Navy were really not interested in it at all. At the time, they were heavily involved in other operations. They were worried about the Americans. They were worried about the British. And it was January 1939. 
all my readings of it show that the Japanese admirals actually end up getting promoted, uh, do quite well. One of them ends up a full admiral. Another one actually ends up retiring from the Japanese Navy um, at the beginning of World War II, but gets called back after World War II after, uh, to the Japanese Navy Self-Defense Force after World War II and does some time helping out with them when they get set up many sort of years later. It's all a sort of random thing, but they, they, the Japanese naval officers are fine. The Japanese customs officers disappear, and I haven't been able to track down where they go. So I don't know whether they got promoted, they got demoted, or whether they got lost somewhere in Manchuria. I have their names, but of course there's a problem I'm dealing with it in that my Japanese is terrible. I'm not even going to try it. I can read a bit of it, but I'm terrible. I've got a friend who is actually Japanese and is a naval historian who's helped me out with this, and it, they can't even find it, and I'm trusting them on this because they're Japanese a lot better than me. And now, this isn't the only incident with the Japanese and the Royal Navy. There's a, an incident less than a year later with the Asama Maru. When is that? It's actually almost exactly a year later. It's, Jan it's January 1940, <laughs> and this one, the Royal Navy's being even worse. Because they've noticed the Germans are trying to get, German merchant seamen are trying to get home to Europe. And they decide to put a stop to it. And they decide to put a stop to it in a way which is also going to remind the Japanese of what their Achilles heel is, as far as the Royal Navy's worked it out. And the Royal Navy are doing this, I can't find an official document, but the way this whole mission is crafted, it's pointing towards this in that the Royal Navy are saying they're worried about Japanese and need to uh, show them a strong versus the Japanese to the term, especially as they're having to take forces off to Europe. And then this operation comes up. And HMS Liverpool, another town-class cruiser, remember what I said about surface radar techniques? Well, mm -hmm. she does an exact surface radar operation. Just 20 miles off the coast of Japan, she intercepts the Asamamaru. The Asamamaru is not just any cruise liner. It is NYD's premier cruise liner. It is the ocean liner of Japan. It is it's like the Queen Elizabeth or the Queen Mary for Britain or the America for America. It's this amazingly important cruise liner. It's this ship which is wrapped up in so much of their culture at the time. And the Royal Navy stops it, fairly short of Tokyo, um, not that far from Yokohama, which is where it was heading for. And it's carrying 50 Germans. It gets stopped. They interview all the Germans aboard. They take 21 of them off because they decide they are potential enemy combatants. And the Japanese don't completely spare about this. At this time, though, the Royal Navy have cut down. They've now got three Dane-class cruisers, which are D-class cruisers. They are older, almost World War I vintage vessels. And HMS Liverpool, a single town class. Technically, Birmingham also still is attached to the 5th Squadron, the China fleet. But Birmingham's actually, at this point, on its way home to be refitted. So the four, they've got four cruisers. 
So HMS Liverpool turning up to do this is A, the only cruiser which can do it, but B, it's making a point to the Japanese, we can get your trade wherever we want to. Also, it sort of embarrasses the Japanese because it shows that German merchant sailors who aren't supposed to be are going back to try to get back to Europe through Japan. They weren't actually within Japanese waters. They were just outside. If I point out, it was literally 20 miles from the shore and the Japanese territorial waters, of course, go out to the 12-mile line. How did the Liverpool stop them? Uh, they first signalled two flags, and when the flags didn't, the flags didn't, weren't taken notice of, they fired a three-pounder gun and said, stop. So the Atomamaru stopped at this point, and almost immediately the pinnace was in the water, and three officers, ten seamen, were sent over. They were all armed with pistols, no rifles. Officially, so it didn't look that bad, but also because uh, one of the Royal Marines aboard HMS Liverpool had recommended that if they had to do any shipboard fighting, actually a rifle was more trouble than it was worth. A pistol was far more better for the confined spaces. So all boarding parties, which Liverpool had done, and Asamamaru wasn't the first ship they boarded. And this is one of the things that's often forgotten. She'd already boarded three... Uh, Three other ships on a previous patrol, but this is such a big status ship, and it's so close to Japan, and it's so many taken off that the Japanese can't ignore it. They, it goes in the papers. They have to respond to it. They how, long did, how long did they hold hold the ship? Uh, an hour and twenty minutes. So they did a really efficient thing. If you consider she had eight hundred passengers, fifty of whom were German. They were really very efficient. And actually, one of the interesting things is whilst the captain of the Asamamaru is rather angry about it and doesn't agree with being stopped at all, his EXO and his chief engineer are actually quite helpful, and the second officer especially, in terms of helping the Royal Navy round up the German passengers. They interview them, they go through all the 50, and they whittle it down to 21 they're taking with them. You know, it, this was a small This it, was a small boarding party. When you're talking 500 passengers, and I'm assuming most of these were, were Japanese? 800 passengers. 800, 800. They were mostly Japanese passengers? Mostly Japanese. Um, there was a fair number of consular officials aboard because the consulate in San Francisco had just had a change of staff. And so they were coming back. And there was also quite a lot of other nationalities aboard. But this is the premier ship in the Japanese sort of merchant fleet at the time. This is a very big high-status ocean liner. So, yes, it's uh, got a lot of very powerful Japanese, uh, Japanese people aboard. What are the consequences of this action? The Japanese actually go completely in a diplomatic way. It's fair. Um, they are very, very upset. They are slightly scared by the Royal Navy getting so close to Japan and not seeing anything. They do try to step up their harassment of British merchant shipping and British ships in the Far East, but it's been going on a low level already, and that was part of the SS Vincent the Pool event. So 
it's not really much of a step up. Their main thing is to try and quote Article 47 of something called the London Declaration, which happened in 1908, and say that this made it illegal for the Royal Navy to have done this. There are three problems with this. One, the London Declaration hadn't been ratified by any of the powers who'd signed it, including the British, who sponsored it. Again, it comes back to the whole, the Royal Navy wrote the laws and then broke the laws. In this case, the Declaration was written, they didn't like it, so they recommended against the government signing it, and because the Royal Navy wouldn't sign up to it, no other Navy would. Secondly, it actually doesn't define what a, combat, what a combatant is. And thirdly, because it's not been ratified, it actually causes trouble for the Japanese in implementation, because if they'd been following it from everything, they couldn't have taken the assistance from the poor prisoner. So they would have got into trouble themselves. The biggest problem, though, is, of course, definitions of who's a combatant. And Japanese main claim to try and get back faces to tell the Royal Navy and the British that they were wrong in terms of their definition of a combatant. This gets into trouble because the Japanese end up claiming uh, that a different definition of what a combatant is to the German definition of a combatant. And they find, actually, eventually the Royal Navy is pointing out um, the Foreign Office in separate letters through Craigie, the British ambassador to Tokyo, are pointing out that the British definition of who a combatant is, is actually stricter than the German definition of who a combatant is, and they were the British applied the British definition. Now, admittedly, one of those people taken prisoner uh, was a gentleman who wasn't a member of the reserves or, and hadn't been a member of the armed forces, but he said, he admitted in his interview, his entire reason for going home to Germany was to try and join up. So the Royal Navy, for some reason, considered him a potential combatant. Eventually, what happens is you end up with Britain reaches an agreement with Japan. They will no longer transport German merchant seamen, and in return, the British will return nine of the sailors to the Japanese authorities. Hmm. Of the 21 they've taken, they return the nine. And these nine are, um, I have this, this beautiful definitions, descriptions they have of them, and I actually have it in front of me. Uh, one is suffering from a damaged jaw, which may eventually require operation. Uh, one is of less technical value than the remainder. Uh, another is described as a non-technician, though very patriotic. Uh, one is described as extremely garrulous and therefore possibly temperamentally unfit for service in submarines. Apart from the age of another one, little to choose between this connection, and the next six are designed, uh, described as dumb to the point of being useless. So that's the ones who the Royal Navy returns. So then let's turn to the other side of the world and the third incident that you, you're going to be discussing, I believe, at, uh, at length at the Imperial War Museum later this month, correct? Yes. Excellent. Uh, and, and this is the uh, obviously after the Battle of the River Plate, where it's uh, probably a little bit better known incident in naval history, and could you just sum, summarize what, what the battle was and how this plays into your narrative? Well, what happened is that the Admiral Graf Spee, this German surface raider, 
sometimes called a pocket battleship, but I usually call them a heavy cruiser, um, has been going around the South Atlantic in Indian Ocean and getting a few kills. Not as many as it could have got, but it's got enough to be annoying. It ended up running across in the River Plate area of South America, three Royal Navy cruisers, and it gets beaten up enough it decides to go into harbour because it can't make it home. So it's, still, uh, it's stuck in, Euro, in Montevideo, the harbour of the um, capital city of Uruguay. And it's given various deadlines for when to leave, but eventually it has to leave on the 17th. And so it ends up going up and scuffling itself. But the Royal Navy was prepared for it not to be given, uh, not to leave on the 17th. They did realise it has these 11-inch guns. It is actually was a replacement in the Reichsmarine for, dread, uh, for the pre-Dreadnought battleships they'd been left with post-First World War. So it's actually quite a well-armed ship. And they worried the Montevideo couldn't force it out. And they also worried it might get an extension of time. The Royal Navy has an aircraft carrier coming down, and not just any aircraft carrier, it's HMS Ark Royal. Ark Royal is their purpose-built strike carrier with a maximum air wing of 72 aircraft. She's loaded with skewer dive bombers, technically called fighters by the Royal Navy, but they're some of the most accurate dive bombers ever built, and swordfish, torpedo spotter reconnaissance aircraft, which are also very capable of bombs, but can use torpedoes, as we've shown later in the war, at um, Toronto to great effect in a harbour. You do not have an aircraft carrier, especially not your largest and most powerful newest strike carrier coming south and are not prepared to use it. Now, my argument is quite simple, that the Royal Navy would have done the same to the Grass Bay as they would later in the war do to the French at Dakar, and they would do, of course, do to the Italians at Toronto, and whenever they have an opportunity to the Germans, whenever they can find their ships in harbour, they would attack the ship in harbour. Now, admittedly, it's in a neutral harbour, but the Royal Navy does have a policy of, of it's better to uh, ask for forgiveness than ask permission. And if you have a nice lit up target sitting in the middle of harbour, do you want to let, run the risk of that surface trader getting out and possibly getting home and having to fight it with your own ships, or do you sink it with your aircraft? My argument is if you've got the aircraft going south, it's going to be sunk with them. How is the Uruguayan uh, government uh, dealing with this, this issue? Are they uh, expressing any concern to the British government uh, about the violations of the laws of neutrality? The Uruguayans are doing their best, but they also have, and one of the advantages the Royal Navy certainly has down there, is that the British ambassador is quite so plugged in. He's an absolute tour, well, tour de force, but uh, by in any stretch of the imagination, for Eugene Milton Drake. And he's managed to maneuver the situation to make sure the grass bay has to leave. But the Uruguayans do not have that much military force. So whilst they would hope the grass bay would leave, if it didn't leave on the 17th, there was no certainty of what would happen. You know, the Royal Navy, the British weren't expecting them to be able to force, militarily force the grass bay out. And they also weren't expecting them to invite the British in to fight a battle in Montevideo Harbour. You know, that's a good way to get your capital city blown up. So 
the Royal Navy knew that they would be in a tremendously difficult position, whatever happened. So Ark Royal is sort of a contingency plan. If the grass bay doesn't come out on the 17th, if it doesn't come and face the cruisers, which the Royal Navy has waiting there, and by the way, it's not just Ark Royal which is coming south. There's lots of cruisers coming across the ocean. And if there's always this great scene in the movie where when it's coming time for the grass bay to either leave or stay, the Ron Harwood orders his cruisers in to meet the grass bay as close to Montevideo as possible. So it can't run away, can't try and hide in one of the channels and slip past them. So the Royal Navy is prepared to be very aggressive. This is why if the grass bay hadn't moved, I'm 99% sure that the order that by this point, Rear Admiral Harwood would have given to the carrier and the strike commander there would have been take out the grass bay in harbour. And it would have been the skewer dive bombers which would have done it. They would literally, it was being lit up like, it was lit up every night with its beautiful lights on in the middle of harbour and the dive bombers would have just gone up and popped the bomb straight down on top of it. But uh, the grass bay had been damaged before. I mean, she was not uh, capable of going full speed even if she had tried to make it out of the harbour and she couldn't have gotten past uh, the cruisers, could she? In theory, she couldn't. But the Royal Navy wasn't sure because the Germans had refused the technical commission to go certain space on their ship. They claimed, of course, that she'd been barely damaged. And then they claimed she'd be damaged uh, so much that she uh, couldn't go to sea. So they, the Royal Navy weren't sure. And the Royal Navy weren't in the business of taking risks. With all these things, dealing with the precedence of the Japanese um, St. Vincent de Paul, and uh, with the Asamamara incident, where they are basically deterring the Japanese and trying to stop the merchant sailors getting back to Germany, it's about stopping the risk before it becomes a problem. The Royal Navy would prefer to deal with a risk when it's nice and small than when it gets bigger. The Grass Bay, yes, it might not be that fast, but what happens if it gets to sea and it manages to get to Buenos Aires? And they are give it five or six days to repair, and then it's you know, got a different position to get out, and it's all the more difficult to get to. What happens if it does get into the open ocean and does manage to elude the Royal Navy? Because if it gets into the night, it theoretically its radar is better than the Royal Navy's radar. It should be able to get away. It hasn't been able to get away from them so far, and all even when it wasn't damaged, the Royal Navy cruisers were fast it. This is the big problem for the Panzer sheet as a whole sort of design, they really can't run away from Royal Navy cruisers. You could point your finger at any, almost pretty much any cruiser on the Royal Navy list, and every single one you hit would go faster than this ship. Because the Royal Navy designed their cruisers, even their warfighting cruisers, around the idea of commerce protection and economic warfare, which meant they gave them speed. Wherever they could, they gave them speed. So it couldn't have got away, but it could have got away, and that would be a risk the Royal Navy wouldn't want to take, especially after it had sunk the merchants it had. The news was getting out, and despite the Royal Navy winning the battle, they hadn't sunk the grass bay. And that doesn't feel like a battle won in the Royal Navy's book. Because Langsdorf had decided to scuttle the ship first. Yes. Ah, it's, it, it, it makes sense for Langsdorf, and it's also... Langsdorf is listening to all the paper talk about all the Royal Navy ships coming closer. 
He hears about the aircraft carrier coming. He thinks Barham's going to be close by. Actually, Renown is the big cattle unit coming south, and she's actually been overtaken by Ark Royal. Ark Royal's managed to get ahead of her because Ark Royal is literally going so far. She's going the fastest she will ever go in her career, her, her captain at the time said, and I've seen nothing to contradict this. Because she's just being, she's just going as fast as she can in a pretty much straight line, not worrying about submarines because they shouldn't be any around there, not worrying about anything, just putting all the power down of all her four propellers, all her engines going at full whack. She's racing down. They think she might have hit 35, 36 knots. Hmm. And not quite sure whether she's managed that fast, but. She was certainly going as fast as she could to get south. And this is another point I make when I'm saying what they would have used her for. You do not put your premier strike carrier through that amount of, of strain, because if you're running at full speed, you are straining the engines. You are going to be leading up to more wear and tear, so more maintenance comes away. You don't go to all that if you're just having her turn up to sit off the coast and do nothing. This is not the only incident between the Royal Navy and the and, and the German Navy. Uh, there is another incident, the Altmark incident, on the 14th of February of 1940. Uh, yes, it's the Royal Navy completely ignoring Norwegian neutrality and going inside Norway as a country to get back prisoners taken by the Graf Spee. It's completely illegal. There is, well, no. It's legal in terms of the prisoners aren't supposed to be taken through neutral territory anyway. So the outmark, what it's doing is illegal. So to, to try and avoid the Royal Navy, it's going through Norwegian territorial waters. And, and what Norwegian, is the outmark? The outmark's the merchant vessel which was being used as a supply ship for the Grass Bay. So before the Battle of the River Lake, the Grass Bay had offloaded all its prisoners who weren't officers to the outmark and taken all the officers aboard it. So after the Battle of the River Plate, all the officers end up being dropped off in Montevideo because when you go into a neutral harbour or a neutral space, you're supposed to discharge your prisoners. The Altmark was in Norwegian waters and it didn't do this. It was trying to keep its prisoners and get them home to Germany. So they would have a sort of at least a victory from that, despite the grass they have been sunk. The Royal Navy knew the Altmark was coming. And suddenly the Coal patrol, as I call it, the, it was supposed to be patrolling to keep a track of merchant vessels going south, going from Norwegian coal, carrying that to Germany. Goes from being this quite small force, usually uh, an old cruiser or a couple of destroyers, to being five destroyers strong, including three tribal class destroyers, a cruiser, and a supply ship. Technically, it's still classed as the coal patrol. It's still, still technically the coal patrol. Um, it's just gone up several measures, orders of magnitude in strength and number. And the outmark is spotted, and it races into a Norwegian fjord. And the Royal Navy senior officer on the, uh, at base, called Captain Viem, who was a flotilla commander for all the tribal class, um, talks with the Norwegian patrol boat, which is there, and goes, will you let me in? No. Will you go search the Ilt Mark yourself? 
No, we can't. She's told that she's not carrying prisoners. We believe her. Will you let me in? No. Ian's talking back with the Admiralty at this point, and he has, of course, Winston Churchill as first sea lord at this time. And Winston Churchill basically goes, you have a blank check, whoever, whatever's necessary, but I get our seamen back. And so Vian then signals to the Norwegian patrol boat, I'm going to go check. If you want, you can come along with me. And goes past the patrol boat at full speed, violating Norwegian neutrality. Races up the fjord. The Altmark, when the HMS Cossack, which is the tribal class destroyer which Vian's commanding and is racing up the fjord, uh, when Cossack gets nearby to her, the Altmark turns on all its searchlights and tries to ram her against the fjord wall, so tries to basically crush this destroyer. She has a, quite a lot of power and is quite a fast and strong vessel, as tribal class destroyers were, and actually manages to whack the Altmark back. So rather than her getting bashed into the wall, the Altmark gets bombed. They close, and you have a scene which could have been out of Pirates of the Caribbean. In that Royal Navy Reservist, who've been formed up into special boarding parties, again, another addition for this beefed-up coal patrol, which was still a coal patrol, um, shoot ropes across to the Altmark and swing across. And there is this beautiful description I've got from one of the bridge officers, and he says, we saw these two men go swimming across. They were lieutenants I knew from the reserves. They had a rifle and a sword on their backs each and a pistol in one hand and the rope in the other. And they just swing across. It's Pirates of the Caribbean on steroids. And then more follow them. Eventually there are 40 sailors aboard from the Royal Navy. They storm the Altmark. The Altmark's crew run off. They basically get off the ship as quickly as they can because they've got these mad devils with smoke shooting, all sorts of things coming up. And the Germans are trying to get away. Some Germans get caught on the bridge. One of them tries to do something with the engines and he gets told not to. In the only violent action, really, of this initial boarding, he gets um, whacked on the head with a pistol butt and decides he's not going to do anything again. And there's shouts of the navies here, and all the prisoners are free. The Royal Navy secures them off. At this point, the um, Outmark's crew who tried to escape the shore decide they're going to try and get back aboard and see if they can't save their ship. So the Royal Navy turned the Outmark's own machine guns on those that crew and scared them off. Now, again, those machine guns were not supposed to be carried because, again, she's supposed to be a merchant ship in neutral waters, so she's not carrying, supposed to be carrying weapons and certainly not be carrying prisoners. But she's been doing something illegal. But, of course, this is all taken, in, this is all taken place inside Norwegian territory. They take the prisoners off onto HMS Cossack and they leave. Altmark gets left there. Well, I was just going to say, after the invasion by the Germans and after their conquest of Norway, they actually stick a great big monument up which says this is the site where English pirates seized the Altmark. <laughs> after World War II, there is a very lovely note from the Norwegian government to the Royal Navy saying, would we like this, uh, would they will remove um, this um, statue? The Royal Navy sends back a note saying, piracy is in our best traditions. We'd like to keep it. <laughs> Alex, when you, when you study these four incidents, 
what are the, the key lessons that you take away from them? Well, I always, I usually put this presentation as when good guys go bad. But the other side of it is how do you win a war? The Royal Navy has to do these things. And yes, they know what they're doing is illegal. They don't want to do it. But they're prepared to do it to do the part of thing which is necessary. The higher thing they've got to always support is protecting their national interest, is securing the Brit Britain, the empire, its merchant seamen. They have to fulfill that mission first. That's their prime aim. The rest is stuff they would like to follow, and they will do their best to follow it. You know, Vian, he's incredibly polite to the Norwegians while he's doing this. He's ignoring them, of course, but he's incredibly polite about how he does it. And afterwards, he works with the Norwegians a lot during World War II. And he's always a case of, well, you didn't have much of a choice because you're a very small power and you didn't want to get into the fight between Britain and Germany. And of course, when you did get into the fight, actually, the Elkmark incident is used as one of the reasons the Germans have for invading Norway, one of their excuses they use. The same with the Japanese. The Royal Navy are always incredibly polite. One of the interesting things you have going on there is that a few weeks later, HMS Birmingham is actually hosting for another Japanese squadron in Weihai Wei, who's come to visit the Royal Navy base at Weihai Wei, a dinner party for the same officers who've been pointing their ship's guns at them a couple of weeks earlier. They're hosting the dinner party. They have it. It's, this is business as usual. This is what we do. We do what we need to do, but we're going to do it in a way which is going to be unerringly polite. And it manages to get them away with a lot. And it's one of the reasons why they're always categorized as these good guys, because they are gentlemen. They are polite. They, are, they do present themselves well in this way. And that's what they are in peacetime. But when they need to be, they do what needs to be done, because that, that's their prime aim, is to protect the national interest, to serve their nation. Is it fair to say, then, that in today's environment, early 20th, 21st century, a large power with a large navy will largely ignore uh, international law, maritime law, when it needs to? When it has to, yes, it will have to. And actually, that will go for most of the ma ma major global navies. If you're, na if you're reliant on that navy to do these sorts of missions, to deal with surface raiders, to recover civilians, to deal with issues of national interest, you're going to have to, to an extent, ignore maritime law or rewrite maritime law. The problem that happens is how you go about it. If you can do it in a clever way, Royal Navy, for example, are a good example. They managed to keep up this mystique of friendliness, either this with the Japanese, despite them being very aggressive in many respects and how they're handling each other. They keep up relationship they keep up this knowledge they, the officers know each other quite well it works and it can actually deter conflict however there are other examples you can you, you can look at where for example the french navy tried similar things in the 18th in the 19th century and sometimes in the 18th century and you can look up incidents where the early american navy tried similar instances because they haven't got that other relationship because they are trying the pure force route to say we want this, they end up causing trouble and actually sometimes lead to war themselves. So it's 
kind of an interesting balancing act. So yes, the Royal Navy are invalid, are upsetting Norway by violating neutrality, but they never do it in such a way that Norwegians stay permanently upset. With them. Mm-hmm. The Norwegians, you know, very quickly soon afterwards are having Royal Navy ships coming and visiting, and there's these negotiations. Good relationships are relations are restored very quickly. It's the same with the Japanese. You know, you've got Percy Noble at one point. He's organizing Tsingtao. Next year, he's organizing the Apanamaru incident. He's the same admiral who's in charge of both. But in the meantime, that he actually goes on a state visit to Japan and goes to their main naval base and has dinners with them and all these sort of things. So he managed to combine that all. What you have when you get trouble is usually when you have a power, and this is why I have to say I worry currently about the South China Sea, where you have a nation which is trying to change maritime law and re- reform it completely in its own interest, but it isn't doing the interactions which allow it to build up the relationship. It's literally just going for, we have this force, you will do what we say, because that will tend to butt heads and cause a lot of upset and will. Uh, lead to a situation where other people feel their only chance is to get anything back is to also resort to force. For example, the Norwegians never felt they would need to resort to force to force the Royal Navy to leave the mm-hmm. territory. That gunboat didn't think it, it would have to fight the Royal Navy. They knew the Royal Navy were going in to look at the merchant ship and then they would leave. With the Japanese, they knew that the Royal Navy was just as powerful as them, but they also knew the Royal Navy wouldn't fire first. So they could point their guns at them, and the Royal Navy could point their guns back at them. But it was a thing that they'd both been equally aggressive. They both equally pointed their guns at each other. They both satisfied honor. Hmm. The Japanese Navy didn't want to get involved that ship with the assistance in the pool, and so they could let them do it. They could say they satisfied honor, but they pointed their guns at the Royal Navy. Royal Navy returned the favor. Weeks later, they could go to tea and have cocktails. <laughs> Alex, thank you very much for joining us on Preble Hall. We really appreciate your research and insights, and we wish you well for your talk at the Imperial War Museum. Thank you. And for our listeners, thank you again for joining us for another episode of Preble Hall. We hope you spread the word. And if you like the episode, please leave a note uh, on any of the platforms you listen to this uh, podcast. Thanks, and we'll see you next time. Preble Hall is in no way intended to reflect the official positions of the Department of the Navy or the Naval Academy.